0: It was about 10 years ago that I first got into the world of media projects on the subject of Burma Dhamma. I started a blog and thought it would be fun to share stories, anecdotes, and experiences from the golden land to meditators everywhere. More than anything, becoming so moved myself by this Dhammic environment, I wanted to help extend the conversation for those meditators who couldn't so easily book a flight and come themselves. Due to the country being closed for so long and with so few foreigners enjoying long stays here, I found much of the discourse in the West about Burmese Buddhism to be at odds with my own actual experience here. So this blog, as well as the later Meditator's Guidebook that we published, were my own attempts to balance these skills. This podcast is the latest iteration of that intent, and it's been a dream to work on something so fulfilling. Oh, and that blog is still active. To see our recent posts, as well as our entire archive of the past decade, check out our website, insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, insightmyanma org, But of course, only after this show, which we think turned out quite well indeed.
1: My name is david sudar and today on dhamma diaries i'm going to relay an experience i had on retreat in myanmar and to just give some context to this my time in myanmar this visit i'm going to be talking about today i ended up staying for 21 months and overwhelmingly just engaging in intensive meditation practice throughout that time most of it i spent with U utajaniya moving throughout some of his different centers in the country but the first few months Saida was out of the country doing some traveling and so I was left a little bit on my own to piece it together I was already practicing in his tradition and so I had a somewhat of a grasp of what I was doing but I bounced around to a few different centers and so after about three months of being there maybe a little bit longer I was at the center in Yangon. And so to this point I had been really just practicing. I'd wake up around maybe three, three thirty in the morning, and then I would practice until around nine or ten at night, taking little breaks for lunch, breakfast, maybe some cleaning and some other little chores. But for the most part I was just doing sitting and walking meditation. The quality of my mind, I was not the type where I just went on retreat at least that period and just dropped right in and great concentration and samadhi, I actually had a, a fairly scattered mind and you know a lot of thinking and distraction and the hindrances were fairly prevalent, but I had a lot of uh, perseverance, a lot of determination. It was just at my, my mindset, on keeping at it. And there was one day where I've been practicing and now it got a little bit later in the evening, I was sitting in meditation in the usual sense of you sit down, you have primary object or I had primary object and drift off, come back and drift off and come back, and drop in and the usual flow. And then there was a particular moment in the meditation where it was almost as if awareness separated out from the rest of the objects of consciousness, the rest of the internal objects like thoughts and sensations, sounds. And it, I had this experience of feeling as if I was on this, my experience beforehand was like I was in this river of the mind, and I was just carried along with it. And then there was this moment where I, it was almost like I went to the river bank. And for the, one of the first times for a really prolonged period, I suppose the, it was the first time to have this for more than just a fleeting moment. But... For the rest of the meditation period, I don't know, it was 30, 40, 60 minutes or whatever, this sustained in unbrokenly, where sitting on the riverbank of consciousness, so to speak, I just watched this flow of, of thoughts move through, of these energetic sensations move through in the body, all the tinglings and pulsings, the reactions and impulses. And what I found so interesting about it is there was this really, really strong sense of not getting entangled. It was as if awareness or mindfulness could exist, and so could thoughts. Prior to that point, when thoughts happened, generally speaking, they overtook awareness, and my awareness would go. So I would either be aware, or I would be thinking. But in this experience, the thoughts still kept flowing through, even verbal thoughts, but they didn't overtake awareness at all. And I remember actually, after a few minutes of this, sitting in the Dhamma hall, I was actually outside on a stoop uh, overlooking the outdoors and under my mosquito net. And I think I was alone out there. Everyone else was indoors. And I actually burst out laughing sitting on my meditation seat. There's been very few occasions in my meditative career that I've ever started laughing loudly during a meditation sit and this was one of them and i think what was so amusing to me was it was just so crystal clear uh, the the selflessness of phenomena and it, i was just like oh my goodness i this is what i get fooled by these you know tingling sensations throughout the body these piercing sensations these impulses the impulse to move my hand let alone the impulse to think a thought or push away a, a Vedana, or, or the, the just getting entangled in thoughts. None of that was happening. And it was just like, wow, I've been so fooled by this and so involved. And in that experience, it was so obvious that all of that was optional. That wasn't a given in my experience, that I would get entangled or identified or grasp onto things. So throughout that period, it, it was really quite remarkable. I mean, just the, the, the depth and breadth of the awareness, I, so much more was, I was able to detect or notice such finer detail in my experience uh, to notice, you know, and that's both externally, you know, say different sounds in the periphery, but also internally, all the little subtleties of sensation, and the little micro bubbles of thought that come onto the screen of awareness. And so for the rest of that period, I I just sort of sat back on that riverbank and I wasn't at this point practicing or at this point in the day in the meditation, I wasn't working with a technique. I just kind of let go back onto the riverbank and just let it all wash through. Just nothing would stick. No thought or impulse or emotion or feeling would hang on. It just all rolled right through. So then after that, of course, the meditation ends and gets late into the night. And that, that depth of awareness left. And then the next day, right? For the rest of the night, it was really quite strong. But then going to sleep, waking up the next day, it was no longer there as things go, in permanence. And I didn't really have this... Kind of lusting or craving to get back to that mode. Instead, what I took it as was uh, a big inspiration. And I saw, oh, this is why I'm practicing to get to this place where the the mind just doesn't grasp. Things can just flow through, where thoughts and feelings don't have to overtake uh, the stability of presence. And so it served as a very powerful motivator and a, a really just a pointer. And as I mentioned earlier, that was about three months into a 21 month retreat, you know, somewhere over the course of the next year, maybe less than that, but just say the next year. or So it was as if I started to not just have a glimmer of that mode, but that, that mode of being started to set in more and more as my baseline where a year, year and a half down the line, that was that experience where almost this kind of like riverbank experience, where I could just watch the flow of thought, feeling, sensation move through unimpededly, became increasingly a, a more normal way to experience reality. And it ceased to be this really humorous, comical, extraordinary thing and just became very uh, ordinary, very basic. And the intensity of the impulses or the intensity of the thoughts uh, really dropped off. I think part of what made that initial experience so amazing to me at the time was even with these intense thoughts bursting into consciousness, there was still no grabbing hold. But over time, the thoughts just quieted down where they didn't really come up so strongly anymore. You know, so I, I looked back on that. It, and I, There are other moments I can point to in my meditative practice and dharma practice that served as something of a a glimmer or a a pointer of what was possible or what was to come. And so what I reflect on with that experience, the aspect that was really just very cool was how it really did serve as that for me. And, And it proved to be relatively true where over time I just stabilized more and more into that space. And it wasn't this, in the end, this extraordinary, really bells and whistles, magical thing, but just this coolness and smoothness of experience. Yeah. What well, I even think of the basic, one of the basic practices I've worked with for years is just noticing, is there clinging? When in doubt, I just look for clinging. And so that experience was a period of time, a meditation period early on in practice without clinging and has served as a bit of a guide, not just that, but this greater theme, tapping into these experiences of what is it to abide in myself without clinging. And it's just been very rich, that that unfolding practice of continuing to chip away at this habit of grasping, of clinging, of seeing deeper into the selflessness of these phenomena that we consider to be self- I consider to be self. And I think with that that's kind of what I, yeah, what I wanted to share here.
0: Yeah. So a question about that, you mentioned that it was a experience or a state where there wasn't clinging and grasping. Would you then say that that was your first moment in life in meditation where you were aware that clinging was not present?
1: No, I would say... Prior to that, there were shorter periods of time, you know, might come for a few seconds or a minute. And in those experiences previously, it had been usually, say, thoughts might just stop or there would just be no unpleasant feelings. So just, there would be nothing there um, objectionable that my mind would be tempted to cling on to. And they would usually be brief. And so this was an experience with no clinging, where there were still a bunch of sensations like strong sensations and, and feelings and thoughts, and even in that there was no clinging. And it wasn't just for a minute; it it really lasted, relatively speaking, long enough for me to really drop
0: into it and settle into it. Mm, right, right. So you were able to be, not just be in that state or having a, a momentary awareness, but to actually live in that state for a more extended time and to be able to explore, reflect, or contemplate on what the mind was like when it was in that sustained state of not clinging. Is that correct? Yes. Hmm. Right. And when the state came about, when you reflected on the experience, was there anything different that you did or certain conditions that led to it or do you have any thoughts on what was able to uh, facilitate this state arising in that way or do you think it was just it wasn't anything you could point to uh, but it was just sustained practice over the course of many hours, months, years that culminated in that moment or, or was there some more uh, localized condition you could point to?
1: Yeah. When I reflect back on it, the, the primary thing, and even at the time, the primary thing I would have pointed to was just that cumulative effect of practice, of being on retreat for so long, specifically. And, you know, it wasn't like there, there weren't other markers, but just over the course of retreat, there were other, you know, just little signs of progress, of things that just deepen. And you know, if anything I had to point to that was a little more specific beyond just the accumulation of time, was just that the quality of, of right effort, of orienting myself to practice in such a way with a lot of patience and perseverance and not grasping towards results or you know, really wanting some particular state. And I really had this mentality of just, you know, I'm just slow and steady, one day at a time. You just sit, you do your practice. Um, do it in a balanced way without kind of getting frustrated or checking out if it's not going how I wanted to or not you know, reaching really far if it if it seems to be close and you know I look back and I think that with that experience and others that was a, a particular way I was practicing that seemed to be really central.
0: Mm, the The way of practicing meaning that at this stage you weren't Really trying to seek after something that wasn't there, trying to attain a state or develop some quote unquote success with your meditation that 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 was so in some way would that be a condition that you let go of that helped to facilitate um, having this moment where uh, clinging wasn't present? Yeah, I think so. It seems to be a big part of it
1: just that that ability to practice in a way without you know, reaching for something. Because it seemed like the fundamental part of that experience, even when it was happening, and like I mentioned, say the, the next day when it wasn't there, though I look back in the whole period, there wasn't this like wanting more of it or wanting it to last longer or to drop deeper into it or to get back to it. And it, what I've seen at other points in my practice, when I've had more of that mindset, that very wanting the thing and wanting more of the thing or a deeper of the thing it prevents it from happening at all.
0: Right. And I guess this leads to a question of wanting to know more about what it was you were practicing. Of course, there's a lot of different ways and methods uh, that these teachings of the Buddha can be practiced, especially in Myanmar, a lot of different traditions. And so I'm curious about if the particular way that you were practicing the set of instructions or methodology or technique that you were given what role that played in this moment of having this realization. So to take a step back um, before answering how much your particular tradition and technique affected this realization, I think would be educating listeners on what it was you were practicing. It was the Sayada Utejaniya method in the Shwayumin tradition, uh, if you could Give some kind of overview of Sayada Utejaniya's teachings and how you were applying them in this extended practice environment. So, I would say I was practicing the, the Utejaniya,
1: Sayada Utejaniya, Shuiyomin approach. The way I related to that practice evolved over time, and in different circumstances require different approaches. So, at that time, I was Well, a big part of my practice all the way through with the mutagenia approach is is really fine-tuning one's attitude. So initially, it was a lot of just asking myself pretty regularly, like, what's my attitude? Is there craving? Is there equanimity? Is there aversion? And so developing a really fine sensitivity to the ways that craving and aversion creep into the experience. And so that was one of the real backdrops is just really monitoring that aspect of the mind. And another big part of his approach is a real attunement to awareness itself. And by that, I mean, an awareness that isn't dependent on a particular technique or method. And while he will, sometimes when people will go to him and tell him I'm doing anapana, mindfulness of breathing, or I'm doing body scans, or I'm doing any number of techniques, you know, I've heard him say various things to various people on these, but the overwhelming thrust I got was, well, do whatever is helpful to be aware, but just don't get dependent on one particular method as if that's the only thing that you can be aware with. And so taking that advice to heart, I, I looked at my practice at that time, I would go through a, a number of different approaches I remember, for example, in that stretch in particular, before that happened, I would just, I would say three words to myself, seeing, I would meditate with my eyes open. And this was also walking to the dining hall or doing formal walking meditation or in the shower, I would say, seeing, hearing, feeling. And I would open myself up when I said "seen," I would take you know, 10 seconds to just open to the field of seeing not focusing on one particular object, being aware of seeing. And then with hearing, I would just open to the field of hearing. And then with feeling, I would just open to all the sensations in the body. And then there were times when my mind would be in awareness and become a little more stable. I would just open to the whole field of experience, just a more open, aware, inclusive awareness. And then there were times where the mind's a little more scattered and I would focus in a little bit more and just hang out with the, body sensations, either with the field of body sensations or doing a little bit of a very gentle body scan. But so when I say that, the emphasis was really on in any moment, what is helpful to me to be aware in this moment. And so my allegiance was not to a particular technique, but just really monitoring awareness and the quality of awareness. Is there awareness here? Isn't there? And developing my own set of skillful means and tools to which directions can I lean to help bring awareness about and stabilize awareness. And and then, of course, the other stuff, too, about the attitude and just monitoring the way I was practicing. And at that time, that was really a big part of my practice, was fusing those two elements together.
0: Right, and this is kind of indicative of, Say to Utegenia's instruction, you could say of not narrowing it down on a prescription to follow a certain step one, step two, step three. Now do this and this and this, but a more wide open general parameter on where the practice goes, and then putting more of the onus on the meditators to find their own way uh, and their own and their own practice of how to how to move in the general direction that Utejani is pointing. Uh, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. I, I often think of his teaching as really very wisdom-centered, and where
1: what he wanted to help yogis do is to help them learn the mind and learn how to be skillful in meditation. And so he was really very anti-prescription. Like, I don't want to just you know, give you some method or technique and go do it. I want to arm you with the, the principles of meditation and the underlying ideas, and then you can go kind of play with it and, and try it out for yourself and see what works and doesn't. And I found that I, I, I was, prior to getting in touch with Utajaniya and learning that style of practice, I'd often struggled with the, the schools of meditation that were just, here's a technique, you know, do a body scan or watch the breath, do some mental noting and just do that technique all day, all the time, just hammer that technique home. And I I think I tend to have a very active, curious mind. As a child, I was off the charts with ADHD. Mm. And I've, I've always been just very curious and lots of questions. And so Coming into a style of practice that he was encouraging us to get curious about our experience, to mm-hmm. have interest and to explore things. I really, I had a real a spirit of like playfulness and curiosity to my practice. Mm. It's like, oh, well, how about I try this? And maybe I'll look at it from this angle. Mm-hmm. And in my time with him, he, he really encouraged that. Uh, you know, when I, when I would go speak to him, he'd usually, I mean, oftentimes he'd just ask me questions like, well, what did you notice? Mm-hmm. Did it seem to be skillful or unskillful? You know, what was the cause and effect? And so just having someone really point me to that cause and effect. And and very rarely was he did he say something like, no, you should not do that. Or
0: yes, you should do that. Right. It was just really encouraging my own learning process. Mm, that's interesting. And it's also, you know, it's a testament that often, whether Dhamma teachers or other teachers, but teachers teach others how they themselves learned and according to their disposition. So having a Dhamma teacher that didn't really focus so much on academia and just went right into the practice might result in a a whole tradition that is focused more on just practice itself and not really acknowledging the role of Paryati. Or conversely to that, having a teacher that really... In his youth, delved into the study of the scriptures and saw the value in knowing, um, in understanding at a deeper level, and then reflecting on that with a practice would present those side by side. And you can go on and on about the different kinds of teacher personalities and what techniques they developed. And I mean, one I find quite interesting is the Sun Moon technique, which is I've never practiced, but I've heard is quite. Rigorous and challenging, and uh, of course, Sun Loon was was this. Uh, he ordained late in life. He was this kind of hard scrabble farmer living in a hot land and just living this tough life. And so, you know, it's not surprising that a really tough, difficult technique would come from someone who had lived a pretty rough uh, and austere life. But going to Utegenia, I've heard. Others suggest that, you know, as a child, as a Dhamma student, Utejaniya was a bit rebellious by nature and rejected and challenged authority. And so, to then be a teacher himself, that rebellious upbringing that he had could come out in his teachings of not wanting to didactically tell people this is the stages or steps you should follow. And now I'm the authority that should be listened to this way. But that rebellious nature of his own learning and own challenging and how he came to the practice is now somewhat possibly how he set up his instruction and his methodology of people coming to learn from him in giving that sense of freedom and exploration rather than, you know, you need to do this and then you need to do this because that's not who he was and that's not how he learned.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of, I heard him say a number of times of how He didn't think of himself as a guru or even a teacher. Uh He was just another practitioner. Right along the way, he's done a lot of practice and he's learned some things. So people want to come to him. He'll he'll share what he knows. Uh, And in that, I did. I found this might be a little bit tangential, but I I found this very refreshing way that he he just seemed really down to earth about those sides Hmm. of his practice. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know all the things. I'm not an arhat. Um, but in that there was this real, um, th- there enabled a real sense of uh, like freshness and, and aliveness and honesty mm-hmm. and kind of what you're saying, this just uh, a real encouragement to just trust your own experience. And, and, and of course, you know, I say this, he also is a, a Buddhist monk and, you know, dives deep into the Buddhist practices and has a real reverence for Obviously, for his teacher, Somminsa and the Buddha and the lineage, and so I, I really loved how he balanced kind of what you 're talking about the rebelliousness and the down to earthness while still very much being part
0: of a tradition and right. really dropping deeper into that tradition right, so then speaking about you and your personal spiritual journey you came from before Utegenia practicing like these more um, structured uh, techniques of first you do this and then this and then this and then you went into much this wider world of, of playfulness and curiosity as you mentioned. So getting back to that moment at play that we're talking about where things really opened up for you for an extended time and there was this lack of of grasping in that moment, or an awareness of the grasping taking place without you uh, doing it blindly. How much do you think that that realization and that moment of openness happening played into moving from doing more structured techniques to practicing in a more open way? Do you think that played a role in that moment taking place?
1: Yeah, I do think for myself that that was pretty central. I, I look at it and I've heard a number of places and I, I can't recall it offhand, but I've, I've heard reference the Buddha teaching so many different things to different people and just how different techniques work with different temperaments. And I've even seen this now teaching meditation in the States of how you know, I can do a sometimes I'll teach a class on methods, for example, and I'll present three or four different methods in a short period of time. And then we have a discussion on how this went for everyone. And people can have dramatically different experiences of different techniques. Uh, you know, you can do meta, mindfulness of breathing, and open awareness. And someone's like, oh, open awareness, I just dropped right in. But then meta, wow, that was so challenging. It was just my head hurt. And then the next person can have the opposite experience. And so I've seen that. I think a lot of practice especially in the early phases is just finding an approach that really suits our temperament and for me in my temperament doing the the very hyper focused uh, very you kind of look at this little microscopic spot and you just pound away at it with the samadhi hammer it really didn't seem to actually work very well for me and i would get, get kind of tense and uh, bored and it just wasn't it wasn't as engaging and i found shifting to this more curious open style of practice it was one just more relaxing but two for me because i i come in with a pretty curious mind it actually really played with my strengths rather than fight against them and so there was a way that personally i believe that that really helped me drop deeper into practice and help facilitate deeper insight. Because I was, I was going with the grain of what I what my temperament was um, worked for it. And I, I do want to put a little disclaimer in there. I, I do believe the mind is very malleable and I've seen this for myself. And I'm inclined to say, if anyone sticks with any t- technique for long enough and you have a, a good teacher that can give you some pointers, I'm inclined to say any technique is going to eventually uh, work sooner or later. But we can help ourselves out by finding one earlier rather
0: than later that does suit us. Yeah, I really agree with that. I really resonate as well. I think I think we share a lot in common because when I first started practicing Utejania, one of the I had a number of huge insights that I almost felt like that my practice up to that point was just on the verge of being able to see a lot of different things. But because the instruction I wasn't getting at that time was encouraging me to look over at those things that was on the precipice, I wasn't open to them. And when I was able to get and grasp what it was that Uteginia wanted me to look at, it was just a question of using that momentum and discipline to look in a different way. And it just, it hammered me in a good sense of the word of how uh, all these things just flowing that I was just right on the verge of, but I just needed to look in that direction. And when you talk about the mind, you know, one of the the big insights I had is I'm like you, I'm curious, I have active mind, I, uh, I'm critically minded, you can say. And uh, when I first started my practice, I felt that, well, one thing is I saw the danger and the damage I'd done to myself by the mind going endlessly and endlessly on. And because the practice that I was initially doing didn't really have a role for that critical analysis to take place. I kind of conflated this uh, runaway mind with any kind of like critical thought or exploration or interest or anything like that as just something to come out of. Like I I just, I, I don't want to give any food to it. I want to starve it. And, and there's no role for this. It's caused me so much suffering and is kind of trying to fit a what do they say a square peg in a round hole or the other way around where mm-hmm. i was trying to crush and starve um who i am and how you know how the mind came to be and or how how what i know of my mind in this life and uh and i i do think that i i second what you say that staying with a tradition and dedicating to it and getting good instruction i was making improvements i was learning things and i was getting good uh insightful guidance of how to work with it but I still couldn't really see a place for that critical mind and thought to take place and when I practice Utagegennia that there's so much space made for whatever the experience and the manifestation is and so when that uh, whatever form the thinking would take that wasn't an impediment to meditation that was actually an object of meditation when you see it in kind of a playful, open way. There's no set instruction of what to do with it. But when you really see what he's pointing at, it became something that I could recognize as being a naturally occurring phenomenon within me and perhaps more within me than many other people having this tendency and being able to to be curious about why it was manifesting, what was manifesting, how I can learn about the nature of mind by by that observation. And I I think that some of those insights were in line with other things I'd been practicing. It's not like I, like you, I don't want to in any way discount the path that I was on or, or the value of other traditions and certainly staying with that. I think these insights would have come in time. But by making such a space for them in the moment, they it was so integrated and so holistic and seeing that yes i'm I'm a critical thinker i I think a lot, I think things that are nonsense, I go to some places where I don't know what I'm doing, but then a good idea comes out and et cetera et cetera, and to be able to bring that into the meditation instead of trying to take it out of the meditation was was a game changer for me
1: yeah I, I especially. Like what you said, just that balance of kind of first noting all the the suffering that has come about by just letting our mind run wild and free. And I, I think sometimes the way I hear meditation talked about more generally is thought is portrayed as something like an enemy or this bad thing that because the only association of it sometimes in meditative circles can be that side of it. Of that's, oh, oh yeah, the thoughts just run free and they're obsessive and compulsive and just endless and going in circles. And so I think that the first part for me is really seeing, yes, that that's true. And and so the the solution to that though, and kind of some of what you're speaking to and what I spoke to that I so appreciated about Utejania is he wasn't endorsing that side. He's like, no, you can't just let the mind run free. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's a And this is some of the the wisdom aspect to me. We're seeing it. It's more of, I guess we might say a a middle way. It's not stopping thought on one side and it's not letting it run free on the other, but it's where can we find that middle point where we're actually harnessing it? And even the Buddha referenced quite a bit using the reflective capacity of mind. And it's all throughout the suttas. Even he has the five daily recollections. He's like, you should reflect on five things I'm sure there's, you would suggest, reflecting on much more than five. But it's just to say, when we go to the teachings of the Buddha and then the teachings of Sayadaw Utejaniya, finding that middle point, and this is some of the the investigation that I found so interesting, was, okay, where can I find that sweet spot with thought? And what does that look like? What is the ways in which it is a, a skillful aid? And when is it hindering me? And just refining the the sensitivity and intuition of what that looks like, and also as awareness builds and gets stronger, not just having the recognition of, oh, this is skillful or unskillful, but the actual ability to follow through on that. Oh, yeah, this thought is like, no, this is just papancha, this is proliferating thought versus, oh, yeah, this is actually wise reflection, or this is a, a skillful question to put to the mind. And so I just found that process of, of, of sorting through that and, and looking more closely and finding that middle way to be so powerful.
0: Yeah. Reflecting on that, you shared a, a moment of insight to you and it just hearing you talk now, it reminds me of a moment of insight for me at Shwayumin, where I was kind of on the cusp of, of grasping what it was that the direction that Utejania was pointing us in, because it's not for those that haven't been to Utejania, or for those that haven't been to many traditions out there and know the contrast. At other centers or, or monasteries, when you go, it's really a, a pretty strict protocol in terms of, of what you submit to in terms of the teacher and the teaching, and then what he gives you and teaches you or she teaches you in return. And there's just more of a looseness and openness of Utegenia. And so when I first went there, it was like, well, what exactly am I supposed to be doing? And is this the direction I'm supposed to be doing it in? Is it like this or this? And just a little bit of confusion coming from that more structure. And when I was right on the cusp of kind of getting what he meant by that openness, I I remember the moment quite clearly. I was walking in the Dhamma hall, walking back and forth in the middle aisle. And as I was trying to be aware of the Sixth Sense Doors, following what I understood of the technique, and if you call it a technique, and at that moment, I suddenly had this like loud cacophony in my head of like, you know, music and thoughts just kind of bursting at once like you, you get in moments of meditation where things still down and then you get a big burst from something underneath. And I immediately kind of tensed up and just this automatic subconscious reaction of like, Oh, I'm, I'm screwing up. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm wasting my time here. This is, I need to be doing this valuable meditation practice. And, and I kind of got knocked off and okay, I have to, have to just focus myself and center myself and get back to what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, this all occurred in like half a second. This, this whole muscle tensing, tensing, tensing and, and mind kind of, kind of narrowing and focusing. And suddenly I realized that the next mind moment was like, wait a second. Like this is, this cacophony that uh, the dish, that just occurred in my mind is a sixth sense door. The mind is one of the, the sixth sense doors, and I can observe this. This can be part of the practice here, and it, it was just uh, it, it was overwhelming in that moment to realize that was possible. Just to realize in that moment that I did not have to push this away and quote unquote get back to the core of the practice, but I could actually live with this reality and be curious about it and all my years decade plus as a meditator i had never realized that i had that power and so i continued walking up and down the hall observing the the cacophony in my head and it got louder and louder and developed into a crescendo and all these different sounds and then I, and part of my mind was this kind of like what are you doing you're you're just playing this is not what meditation is but i could hear that voice and see that was just another conditioned reaction. It wasn't me. So I kept observing and like you, I started smiling and I was just like, this has no power over me. I I don't, I'm not trying to quiet it and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not, I'm not rolling in it. I'm just, this is the reality. And it went to this crescendo and then like, you know, it, it dissolved and silence was there. And that, but that silence wasn't a better state for me than the cacophony. It was just another mind moment of nature observing what or, or manifesting what is in that moment. And then as I continued walking back and forth, like sometimes that noise would gather and accumulate and then crescendo and dissolve again, but it was all okay and part of the practice. And to, to have someone with such an active, noisy, engaged mind, realizing that that very thing could be looked at rather than tried to calm down through another method of calming of focusing of of coming to center because all of those things as as valuable as they were in their own way it's still i, I wasn't aware of what was actually happening i was i was getting into uh i was using another practice or technique to to calm that intensity and to be able to welcome that intensity was you know, was a moment for me in realizing what meditation could be even after so many years of doing meditation that it was just another door of like, ah, this also works.
1: It's really uh, beautiful to hear. And it, it's kind of that teaching Tejaniya offers on right attitude and that ability. Okay, yeah, there's some noise in the mind or there's some some experience happening and maybe there's some degree of even aversion or grasping built in it like okay this is intense Uh, but then it's how are we relating to that and i I think similar to you i had a lot of those experiences of starting to see i think for me it started just even externally of i remember in myanmar the the first few months having a lot of uh, a lot of reactions to the sound you know the different generators going uh the the Burmese Dharma talks, blaring and crackly speakers, mm. the construction projects that seem to be happening like every few blocks.
0: Right.
1: You know, all the other sounds. And there was this big process I had around just this like aversion coming up towards the sound and thinking, like, well, no, meditation, you should be quiet. Like, that's because it helps you drop in and be more focused. Mm. So I think there was initially just some really learning to welcome all those sounds in and really see oh this uh, doesn't have to actually be a problem can this just be part of the practice too and i found the more i was able to welcome those things in it it then lent itself a little more to some of what you're speaking about some of the more inner stuff that comes up like oh okay yeah this too i don't need to swat this away i don't yeah i could calm down the mind like if i have that tool accessible to me. It's not a sure. bad route, but this route also is pretty good, and, and for me, actually, seemed to work a little bit better. Um, of just welcoming it and looking at it a little more closely. like Oh, okay, yeah, this is here, and this is okay. arises passes. This is, does a little dance. Um, but, but I guess some of what I'm speaking to is also maybe this is some of what you're referring to, or not. Um, But sometimes I would notice there when I would have some sort of reaction or thought come up there, I could like layer reactions on top of reactions, Mm -hmm. be some aversion that would come up. And then I'd be frustrated, like, oh, why is this aversion coming up? I thought I was like, Mm -hmm. can I I just be present? Mm -hmm. And so starting to more and more welcome that in. It's like, oh, yeah, sometimes like craving happens. Sometimes aversion comes into the mind. Sometimes the mind gets contracted and tense and noisy and just oh can i notice that with a spirit of equanimity and just okay that's what's here now welcome that just continue Uh, and so that too is i think something utajania pointed out that specifically more than i've heard from other teachers that was a really big aid
0: yeah that's true and it reminds me of when I was seeing Utegenia's approach, one of the theories I kind of had, and this is just a, this is like a take, right? So this is not me trying to give a historical lesson or to, to, to say with absolute certainty how, uh, you know, how to contrast different people who came along at different times. It's just kind of a, a theory that that I developed that may or may land with people in different ways. Um, so it's loosely said, but the theory is that. When I was looking at how Utejaniya was teaching, I was thinking, well, well, he came along as a teacher after some of these other great big traditions in Burma, you know, like um, uh, Upandita, Mahasi, Goenka, Sumlun, uh, Mogok, etc. And these traditions themselves, when they came, were quite revolutionary in their own way. I mean, they were like, you know, they were delivering mass Teachings, or I should say, they were delivering teachings to mass groups of people promising individual liberation and salvation through their own practice, regardless of their age or gender or monastic or lay background. And this was something that was really unprecedented in terms of the reach and the power of what they were doing that had had ever come before. This many people are meditating. And what they were doing was all an experiment. You know, they were, um, these are definitely wise and learned people, but they're, they're using modern techniques to be able to deliver these courses to so many different people and they're doing them in different ways. And so there's just this incredible innovation going on for what they're, what they're doing. And whenever you're doing innovation, you can kind of, you you can move the bar up, you know, definitely one rung, two runs, three rungs, whatever. But then, when you move it up those rungs, you can't, um, how to say it, like at that stage, there's still an evaluation that has to happen for where it has to fit or slot in better and where it can be improved on one or two rungs above that. And that that isn't really possible for innovation because you you, you can't really innovate on the innovation. You have to do the innovation first. And when I saw how Utejani was teaching and how he was structuring it, it really seemed to me like the next generation of innovation that like he's taking these extraordinary structures that these other great traditions have set before him. And he's seeing just little things that they seem to, or perhaps he's seeing these little things that they, they, they maybe have missed or that where the messaging was going in this direction. And then people took it too far. They took it this way, or they thought it this way and they weren't really, um, something that couldn't really be seen at the time. So it's not a criticism of those other traditions. It's just an acknowledgement that they were doing what they could at the time. And because so much of, of Utegenia's messaging is about this, this uh, well, well, there's so many components to it, but uh, one of those is concerning the sense of success a meditator wants to have, the sense of weight of wanting to do it correctly, the sense of focus that exhausts you, this sense of taking one set of instructions and following them rigorously, all these other things he speaks to directly that were developments and innovations of the previous generation. And so in some ways, it seemed like he was having, because he came along later, he was having this insight of things that maybe weren't working as well as they could and then speaking directly to them. And meditators that are in those other traditions that then hear this talk, I remember I read one of his books years before I ever went to his center. And while I was never, while I was still very happy with what I was practicing, but even just the words of the book, it impacted me of how I was continuing on that meditation that just, just putting, just making me aware of the pressure I was putting on myself and, and how tight I was holding it and that, it that I could release that in some ways. I had never heard that messaging before. So it, it just kind of was interesting to me to see like a, another generation of innovation in filling in these cracks of how the teachings being delivered.
1: Yeah, I, I had really similar thoughts, and, and specifically, I've, I've noted, it felt to me like Utejini was playing off of the Mahasi tradition specifically quite a bit. Sure. And I remember once hearing someone joking around that Shwayo Men was sort of like a recovery room for former Mahasi meditators. <laughs> and and I, and I think part of that, kind of what you're saying with the innovation, I think a lot of it, you know, I never met Shwayo Sayadaw, before my time but you know the history so saira Utejaniya's teacher Shoyomin saira was one of the foremost uh, disciples of mahasi saira and you know my memory might be getting this wrong but i seem to recall that he ran the yangon uh, mahasi sasana yekta shuoyomin saira did for some time either that or mahasi saira wanted him to which is just to say he was very steeped in the Mahasi tradition mm-hmm. and had the seal of approval from Mahasi Sayadaw. And yet he, he then left to go start his own monastery. And I don't know quite all the historical details behind that, but the approach of practice that Shoyomin Sayadaw began teaching was very distinct from Mahasi Sayadaw and is, is pretty similar to what Utejaniya teaches. He's more an extension of Shoyomin. And so it kind of what you're saying, that, that sequence of innovation, what I imagine Shua us saw and what Utejaniya continued to deepen and refine in his own way was a lot of those blind spots of not just the Mahasi tradition, but a, a lot of that wave of teaching around. And so I've personally benefited a lot of, of practicing the Utejaniya approach by my, also my prior studies of the Guenka approach and the Mahasi approach has really just with that flavor of Burmese Buddhism and then seeing, oh, this is why Utejina seems to keep emphasizing this so much.
0: Right, right. It's a response in some ways.
1: And I think even in another, like, and then there's the things as you touched on too, that he doesn't mention mm-hmm. in my practices, for example, with uh, the Mahasi tradition, they would talk a lot about the stages of insight the 16 stages of insight that you proceed up through uh, the insights into dukkha and impermanence and onto equanimity and then awakening happens. And Utejania would never talk about those. And I remember asking him once, and he's just like, he just kind of brushed it off aside. And He's like, well, it's not really important. Like know your experience, Mm -hmm. know your mind, and where you're at on some map is kind of what you said. I, I think some of where he was pointing me at was, or in his view, was that getting hung up on those maps really leads to this striving for progress and this kind of grasping that he's seen is not actually that helpful for most meditators. Um, I'm maybe putting words in his mouth here, but he just his real rel- reluctance to talk about those or go into them, even though he clearly knew them, I also found very, very uh, fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think that it's really interesting to look at the how loose both Yumin and Uteginia hold their teachings. And by that, I, I can give a couple anecdotes that I've heard. So as far as Shwayumin said, uh, I've heard this story about how he was instrumental in allowing Goenka's courses to be approved, to be taught in Myanmar. Uh, people might not know this outside of Myanmar, but you can't just set up shop and teach whatever you want and say it's the Buddhist teachings. These, uh, this this could be quite damaging if you're misrepresenting these teachings that people hold so sacred and are trying to preserve the sasana. And so, if you want to teach something, it has to be approved by a, a, a body of senior monks. And. With Goenka, there was a bit of hesitation. He, he was, uh, he wasn't a born Buddhist. He was Indian. He wasn't even in Myanmar at the time. He was exiled. And, uh, and then moreover, he was from a different school from Mahasi. Mahasi was really the state sponsored practice and all the offshoots received a lot of support from the government and being able to spread this technique. I, I was just talking to another guest uh, a few months ago and he was referencing in the early days, Pauk's books. Could not be printed because the entire printing press was controlled by the government and the government the entire government was influenced by Mahasi. and they saw Pauk's teaching as as damaging to to, to their style and so there 's enormous control here and uh, and so there's there 's some hesitation and concern about uh, goenka 's teachings being um, just very different from what was uh, in the norm at the time. And Shui Min was one who really spoke up and really supported Goenka and thought that these 10 day courses were great and his instruction was just wonderful. And this was, and there was some quote he said, I'm paraphrasing the way it was relayed to me. He said something in the, the senior Sangha meeting like, you know, if people want to come and practice in a loose and relaxed way, they should come to Shui Min. If they want to practice in a rigorous and structured way, they should practice in Goenka. These are both great techniques. And uh, people should have the opportunity to be able to practice both of them. And um, there's there's so many ways to apply the Buddhist teachings. And Shwayuman Sayada would so rarely speak forcefully or advocate for something. He was, he was known as being quite economical with his words, quite circumspect, that it carried the day. And that uh, Goenka's teachings being licensed in 1990 to uh, come and set up in Burma really can be credited to the strong support that Shwayam and showed, even though he had a completely different style of teaching and said as much in the meeting, just felt that those two kinds of practices and many more that people should have the opportunity for them. It's just how lightly and loosely do you have to hold your own teachings and your own path to not just Uh, tolerate and accept other ways of going about it, but actually embrace it and support and advocate. And I think that uh, that also speaks to just the diversity that you find in Myanmar today and that you, a practitioner, is able to come and to have such a wide choice of different paths and teachers that they want to practice according to their own predilection and background. Hmm
1: it's really fascinating. I didn't know that about the Shoyomin support for Gwenka for and the, the 10-day courses. But it really, I mean, it, it also, you know, I see, saw some of that reflected in Utejania when people would go and tell him, I remember there were a group of people who wanted to go do a, a two-month Mahasi retreat. And he just was like, yeah, you know, go do it. See what you learn. And I, I just appreciated that openness. And even, a, you know, on a similar note, when I was in the robes with Utejania, and when I told him I was going to disrobe and go back home to the States, the primary thing he said to me was he was just kind of like, okay, well, it's like same practice, just different conditions. He's like, you can still practice. Like the robes, not as important, just like keep the practice going. And I, I found it really remarkable when he said it, because my my thought a lot of times is, you know, people who are in the robes or in the monastic tradition, it's there's a real a sacredness mm-hmm. to it. Right. When Someone says they're going to stop being a monk that oftentimes it's like, well, why, why would you do that? You shouldn't do that. And mm-hmm. kind of try and convince you otherwise. Or, But he was just so like, if that's what you feel you need to do, go do it. You can still practice, like still possible. And I, I really appreciated that, just that spirit he had towards a lot of things, just trusting people with where they were at and, um, you know, of course, if someone said they're going to go do something really outrageous, he'd be mm. like, yeah, that's sure, sure. You know? like I want to go to the bar tomorrow. He'd be like, no, mm. no, I'll mm. do that. You know, but um, yeah, so I just, I guess I see some of that quality that you're mentioning with women mirrored and how Motejiania related to students as well.
0: Yeah, sure. And I, I think of it in the loose way he holds it. You know, when you go to other centers and other traditions, it's like, There is all this background and justification and theory and like why their practice, why this practice being taught and the way it's being taught kind of has the sacredness and this this parallel in the scriptures and everything is supported. And at those centers, it's often forbidden at those monasteries and traditions, it's often forbidden to even talk about other practices or traditions. You're really there just to learn that. And there's a sense of aversion or fear uh, outside of other practices doing other things because there's so much attachment in that style and that history and narrative that's been formed. And so I was also stunned when I went to Yumin how loosely Uteginia holds it. And that not only is this kind of discussion about other practices and contrasting Uh, not, not forbidden, but I've been in sessions where people have, meditators have stood up in the question and answer and just said directly, well, you know, Dejania, you got this part right, and this is okay, but you're, you're wrong in this. And like, this doesn't really work this way. And you know, this doesn't accord to how how things are are there and you're, you're mistaken over here. And there's just no defense on his side. There's, or there's no defensiveness, I should say. There's, there's no vulnerability of, of having to like, you know pull the guards around and and protect uh what this tradition is saying and hold on to it tightly it's just kind of like well okay this is this is what i'm teaching this is how i understand it you know welcome to you want to take these points you can take these points you want to go somewhere else you can go somewhere else and it, it's it's just remarkable to see a tradition that's able to carry itself you know from the leader on down because obviously in any spiritual tradition or or corporation or family or community or anything uh, the culture and the characteristics of the person on top is what subtly influences everyone that come into it, and so this real detachment and the just the loose way he holds what he's teaching, then others learn they can also hold it that way and that they don't have to be defensive they don't have to to be uh to be skeptical looking at wisdom that can come from other places, but they can they can hold it loosely and that I think that that relaxation. That comes from holding it loosely actually can go into the practice and the the ease of the mind as it uh, as it starts to to be aware. Hmm. Maybe even bringing that a little bit full circle, the
1: initial story that I relayed, where it seems like a lot of the the practice that experience I had was was insight into not self or to selflessness of just to Mm -hmm. see oh these are just phenomena that are occurring in the mind and. I don't need to hold on to them. And so in the same way you mentioned the lack of defensiveness when someone's telling Sayadaw, oh, well, I think it should be this way or that, or you got this right or wrong. A lot of what he was instilling uh, was, in my perspective, is a real focus, say, in the three characteristics of dukkha, nicha, anatta, suffering, impermanence, and not-self. The focus to me seemed to really be on the not-self, characteristic right yeah. about you know see everything is just nature it's just phenomena, and so so say in an example of not being defensive there's a really internalized into the practice of just like okay yep maybe in his mind i don't know his mind maybe in his mind there was some defensive thought but then you know maybe there wasn't but the practice is so much about just just okay this is just what's here i don't need to react to it And in each moment, how can I respond or act skillfully and wisely? Because there is such a deep internalization of just the selflessness of all the phenomena. I don't need to hold on to these, Mm -hmm. let it flow. And and then I found that there was a real translation in that or a, a movement. The deeper I found for myself, or not just then, but over the course of my whole time practicing, even to this day, the more that I can touch into that space of not self, you know, on and, and subtler and subtler levels, the more there is that chance to really respond skillfully, whether that is responding to someone who's telling me I'm wrong or that's even, you know, making bigger structural life choices. Like, well, what, what do I, do I want to teach? Or do I want to just like practice or do I want to just a simple life or, we can really sort through the even the views, the, the clinging to different views about how life should be or what I want or don't want. To really sort through that, like, okay, no, that feels like reactivity. Pelesa. Then find a route the, of wise responses. I guess just what I'm saying there is I found a real link between that quality of practice he teaches and the ability to to act more wisely in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I don't know if you could answer this because it's theoretical. So in your prior practice as a meditator, when you were engaged in systems that were more structured and, and technique-based, uh, you went from that into this more open instruction of say, Utegeniya. And it was in that moment of practice that this transformative awareness took place. Do you think that that transformative moment could also have come about for you? I'm not talking about for someone else because we're, you know, as we talked about, there's, it's not like there's a perfect tradition or practice. People uh, have their own needs of who they are and what they need, even, even at a different time in their life. But for you, do you think that coming from a place of more structured technique, could still have led in some way to that moment of non-grasping and that 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 incredible transformative moment of awareness? Or do you think that the path that you were on of the open awareness was something that was really imperative and necessary for the conditions to arise that you could enter into that state?
1: Mm. Well, somewhat as I mentioned earlier, I think that I look at it less in terms of like a yes or no and more, on um, like a, a, say, efficiency scale or timeline. Right, and, right. Like that approach saved me a lot of time. Right. Mm-hmm. I like, I trust the basics of the, the Dharma and the practice that I think those experiences and those insights would have come about either way. It might just have taken me longer to get there.
0: Right, right. So, and this is something, this moment that you had of this awareness this uh, this has been something like a stepping stone or a foundation that your subsequent meditative work has been built off of? Is that fair to say?
1: Um, no, I think it, it, it was more, I guess I would say in the context of that time in Myanmar, I mean, really, I had a prior experience about, I don't know, maybe just trying to think of dates right now we'll just say many years before that i don't know 10 years or so five to 10 years eight or ten. i don't know number of years before i had another meditative experience that happened a little more out of context and sporadically but just this real deep insight into not self but that w- that was like a split second mm. It was just like my whole consciousness restructured in a way that that moment really my whole life pretty dramatically changed after that. And that's what led me to getting really seriously into meditation. Oh, interesting. Wanting to do something like go on a 21-month retreat. (laughs) Right. And so I look at that prior experience as probably being the most transformative moment of my life. Mm Mm-hmm but it was like I had no context for it and I didn't even really know what happened to me. Mm. And it was it was just like a split moment. It wasn't like, there was nothing I could really, nothing I could reproduce or knew what, what to even say what it was. But it, it just like the whole, it was just like this selflessness of some like split moment insight into like, Oh, everything. It's like, yeah, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. Like time isn't real. Uh Uh, just like their past and future are just concepts and there's Uh just moment but I didn't have a practice or a training to, to stabilize that at all right and so then that experience in Myanmar that I relayed earlier I think was probably since that time it was like one of the first times that split moment like I call it an insight but maybe even some like we could call it like a deep heart intuition on like oh what's possible or what the nature of reality is but there was still so much delusion in my experience Mm -hmm. there was no stabilization and so that experience from earlier that i talked about it was like it's stabilized in it in an enduring way for maybe the first time and so it, it was some of the laughter was almost like oh this is like this is where this goes to a place w- where it's like stabilized and I am not my thoughts isn't just some like intuition or some sentiment, but it's like an actual steady moment to moment reality that is is capable of not being um, broken. And so I look at them, that, that initial moment, and then all the meditative experience I had after that, and then the moment I talked about earlier in Myanmar is kind of like just different Um, different markers on the same timeline Mm -hmm. slowly led to just a a stabilization of that mode of like, Oh, by the, I would say now I'm several years removed from that and have a live in lay life. And I get to still go on a couple months of retreat a year and have a daily practice, but it definitely not in this like really deep stabilization of, Know, say not getting entangled in thoughts for example mm. but towards the end of that you know a pretty sizable chunk of that 21 month retreat that experience just it's stabilized so deeply where that i didn't really have to even do sitting meditation anymore it wasn't necessary to you know, sit and close my eyes and practice it was just like oh yeah the mind just doesn't really get entangled in stuff so much mm-hmm. and yeah, so in some senses, I see it to your question, was it like a stepping stone? I, I think it was just like a marker for Sada of inspiration and faith, of like, oh yeah, this is, I'm on the right track. Like, this is possible. Like, just keep going, keep going. And so, yeah, it had a real, a beautiful significance, but it was
0: part of a bigger timeline. Right. Right. And did you, I think you mentioned that Utegenia wasn't present when that occurred at that moment when the insight came, did you talk to him eventually about it or talk to other people in the tradition or did did you have any kind of conversation or guidance or instruction based on the experience you had at that time?
1: Yeah. So I, I ended up seeing him not too long after a few weeks and I told him about it. And he just sounded really unimpressed. Like <laughs> right. he was just kind of like, okay, what have you noticed? Or what's different now? Or so are you going to stop practicing? Cause he had this insight. I don't think he actually said that, but that was like, you kind of really just like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. So, um, you know, what do you know now? And okay, keep going. Right which I, in some respects, I was a little disappointed because, you know, mm-hmm. like later you go report to your teacher this grand experience and you want
0: some mm-hmm.
1: validation. Um, but he, yeah, he just really gave me that. And, and it furthered that almost a, like a, that right attitude perspective of we don't get worked up over the difficulties, but we also don't get worked up over the the breakthroughs. It's just like, okay, yeah, that happened. That's like, great, but we just got to keep keep going.
0: Mm, take it in stride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, that's really wonderful. It's great to hear about that experience and everything that built off from it, also the things that led to it. And I think also what's really cool is just having this discussion where we're going into such depth of the practice itself and insights that come from it. I think that there can sometimes be a reticence of meditators sharing openly about what experiences they're going through. I want to say informal meditation, but I I know that uh the the line of, you know, formal and informal meditation in isn't quite as as clear as in other places where it's, you know, literally on or off the cushion. So it's not quite that, but it is explaining this development of mindfulness and awareness that you went through and I think it's really valuable to have these conversations, have this reflection, learn from one another, and then share it with others that are going through their own process and their own journey to be able to reflect on where they're at and similar challenges and breakthroughs that they've had.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I've benefited so much along the way from just hearing from other practitioners and teachers and some of what you spoke to, too, just the willingness to actually share some of their experience rather than just theory of like, Oh no, this is what happened and mm-hmm. here's what from that or what led to it. Um, the more I, every time I've heard people be willing to share that it's, it's always been really meaningful or maybe not meaningful, but just like helpful.
0: Yeah. Right. And even if one's journey or mind is very different from my own, just seeing how that personal journey has taken place and, and that kind of internal personal way of sharing, it can't but have an effect on me to do that similar reflection on myself as I'm listening to someone talk about themselves and you, you know, you're hearing their story. There's, there's this internal process of, of kind of like, well, wh- what did I do with that? Or where, where was I with that? Or what, what have I figured out there? And, so that, and that gives a rise to a different type of reflection, as you said, than when you're, you're, you're reading more about uh, theory or something. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Was there anything else you wanted to comment on about this that we haven't covered yet?
1: No, I think that that pretty much covers it all.
0: Okay. Well, great. Then uh, thanks for coming on, and best wishes as you continue your practice in this way.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Joa.
0: We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given... We simply could not continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support and generous donors listeners and friends like you because these episodes are fully funded by listeners without your generosity and particularly the meta behind such generosity we wouldn't be able to continue producing these episodes so we'd just like to take this moment to thank you up front for your continued support we do welcome both one-time donations as well as monthly pledges whether they're large donations of $100 or more, or smaller ones, $10, $5, even $1. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated. It will mean so much to all of us, of course, and we hope to you as well, to help us make merit by providing access to the voices of our Dhamma community from every aspect of Myanmar, to more and more listeners like you. Every meritorious donation helps towards access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more gem. We greatly appreciate your generosity and, of course, we share all of our merits with you. Thank you. If you would like to join in our mission to share the Dhamma from the Golden Land more widely, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to sustaining the programming. You can give right on our website via credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash or through PayPal by going to paypal.me slash insightmyanmar. We also take donation through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. In all cases, simply search Insight Myanmar on each platform and you'll find our account. Alternatively, you can also visit our website for specific links to any of these respective accounts, or feel free to email us at info at in all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word spelled I N S I G H T M Y A N M A R. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you for your kind consideration. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, I N S I G H T M Y A N M A R. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in our discussions on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name of Insight Myanmar. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at BurmaDhamma at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com. And we're also active on Dhamma Wheel. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharngay. There's of course Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois produce original artwork, and a special Mongolian volunteer who was asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far, And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful, personal stories. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact-check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar Podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts and excerpts of any episodes. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. As you know, our podcasts are 100% listener-supported. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I N S I G H T M Y A N M A R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go on the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, and see you next show.